Almost. Give it some time, maybe. You can continue talking if you wish. again to make sure it's as awkward as possible for when we get started. All right, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you here. Uh, my name is Josh Enns, and I come from the great city of Huntley, uh, born and raised. No, just kidding. Um, my, my accent might have given that away. I do live in Huntley now, but I am from Canada, which is why uh, I talk so normally compared to all of you. Um, you can laugh there, that's okay. Um, I work in Hamilton as a pastoral assistant, or assistant to the pastor, as I like to sometimes call it. Um, and I work also at a school as a teacher of year 7 to 10s and work with the social sciences department. So I work with history, um, geography, economics, all that fun stuff. But today we're not going to talk about that. Today we're going to talk about a title called, You Are Not the Church of Tomorrow. Seeing yourself as part of God's church today. And when I was growing up, I often remember hearing the statement that youth were the church of tomorrow. Maybe you've heard that yourself and you think to yourself, that seems okay. People must mean that today's youth are going to be tomorrow's leaders, tomorrow's pastors, tomorrow's elders, all those different things. They're the church of the future. That seems at first like an innocent enough explanation. So am I being pedantic to turn it on its head? Can't we let it slide? Obviously, I don't think so. I don't think we can let it slide because I think that whatever positives people might be trying to communicate with that phrase, you are the church of tomorrow or youth are the future of the church, whatever positives might be gained are far outweighed by the negatives that we assume when we hear those words. The positive message is undone by how much of a problem that sentence actually is. And so over today and then tomorrow, we're going to look at two different aspects of why this is such an issue, why this statement would be such a problem. There's a bit of a joke at the youth Bible study that I run, um, and it's based off of probably the one thing I remember from high school chemistry. Um, And the one thing I remember from high school chemistry is that One of the properties of a gas, as opposed to a liquid or a solid, is that a gas fills the space of the container. And the joke at the youth Bible study that I run is that I fill the time that I'm given. So whether I have half an hour, I'll speak for half an hour. If I have 45 minutes, I'll speak for 45 minutes. Or today, with 90 minutes, my goal is not to speak for 90 minutes. So hopefully there will be some time for questions. But, Lord willing, over the next two sessions, today and tomorrow, we are going to look at that statement 
seeing yourself as part of God's church today? What does that mean for you as a young person? How can you join God's church and how can you see yourself as part of it rather than waiting and waiting and waiting till one day finally being a part of it? So in today's message, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that phrase from one particular angle, and then tomorrow we're going to look at it from a different angle. So today, what I'm going to be talking about is seeing yourself as part of God's invisible church. And tomorrow, we'll be talking about seeing yourself as part of the visible church or the local church. When we talk about the visible church, we're talking about a particular group of people in a particular place. The place where you might go on a Sunday morning to sing God's praises and to hear his word preached. But today, we're going to be talking about the invisible church. That's God's people from all different places around the world, people we've never met, all of God's people, the saved people of the world in one body, the body of Christ. So how can you see yourself as part of that group of people? So, going back to that statement, the statement that I heard so often when I was a young person, youth are the church of tomorrow. The first question I always have when I hear that is, but what about today? What about today? What does that mean for the young person today when they hear that? What does that mean for the person in the meantime, before tomorrow comes? It seems to me, and again, that this is talking about the future, the future only, and saying that one day you will be able to contribute something meaningful to the church. But what about today? If we're applying this to that definition I've already given about God's invisible church, the fact that people from all tribes, tongues, people, and nations belong to this one body, one head of Christ, then is this saying that tomorrow, in the future, one day you'll be able to join that? I think you already start to see the problems with this phrase. Because biblically speaking, the only people who are the church of tomorrow are also the church of today. Biblically speaking, there's, there's no one who can say, oh, I'm going to be a part of the church tomorrow, but not really today. Today's not for me. I'm going to do my own thing right now, but one day, one day I'd like to join the church. The Bible doesn't give us that category of thinking. It doesn't allow us that way of weaseling out of today. The only people who have any hope of being part of the church tomorrow are those who know that they are part of the church today. Tomorrow is not guaranteed, my friends. Today is the only day we know for certain we have Turn with me, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 37. This is, again, I feel like I can echo what Andre said this, this morning earlier, that my introduction today is quite long because I want to unpack some of the things of, of this statement, seeing yourself as part of the church today before we dive into one text in particular. And so bear with me as we continue in the introduction. This is Romans chapter 8, and I'll begin reading from verse 37. Romans chapter 8, 37. It says there in Romans chapter 8, that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? What a, what a wonderful passage that is. And if you are a Christian here today, not even tomorrow, not even the things to come can separate you from God's love. But what's absent from this verse, completely absent, is the idea that you can somehow deny the gospel today to say, I don't want any of that, and then somehow be assured that there will still be tomorrow to jump in. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord is so powerful that it can protect us from all these other things to come. That doesn't mean we can just say, I'll pass, I'll wait. Tomorrow might be a better day to do this. There's no promise given for those who might trust in Christ. No promise given for those who might follow after him. No promise for those who might consider a life devoted to him. The promise is for those who have received him by faith, who trust him and who love him. One of the great blessings of the Christian life is that in salvation, God doesn't merely give us gifts. He doesn't merely give us this gift of being saved, but in salvation, he gives us Christ And through the Holy Spirit, we experience union with Christ and we receive Christ and all his blessings. You can't somehow reserve part of Christ for later and say, I kind of think this Christianity thing is true. I've seen the difference it makes in others, but I just don't want it right now. Let me press pause. Let me buy it on layaway and get it later. At past impact conferences, I've enjoyed buying quite a large stack of books. And one of the things that I, I have done before is I've taken books that I've thought to myself, this, this might be handy later. There's only one copy. It might be nice to have. Um, and I've put it aside, asked them to put it in a little bag. And then when um, Monday morning comes, I'm able to go to the bookshop at, just down the, the way there, and I'm able to select which books I'd like and which books I'd like to put back. And I can do that. They're they're, they're fine with that. They're fine with you maybe deciding in the end that you didn't want that book. But the same is not true for Christianity. You cannot put these things aside, put these gifts of Christ aside, put gifts like salvation, being right with God aside, and then somehow claim them later while denying them today. So when you hear those words, the youth are the church of tomorrow, I want you to think to yourself, what does that mean for today? Do we have biblical grounds to push this aside and wait? Or is there good reason to think we need to do something about today first? Let's look at one further passage before we move to our text for this morning. Um, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. Jesus here is telling a parable of two sons. And it's not the more famous parable of the prodigal son, but it's a different one. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, he tells a parable that I think will be familiar for many of us who have been asked to do things by our parents. Listen to see if you see yourself in this parable. Jesus is saying in Matthew 21, verse 28, What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. 
But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now imagine your parent asks you to do something. They say, son or daughter, please come and help me do the dishes. I don't know how it would work in your house, but answering, I will not, wouldn't have gone down very well in my house. But neither would have the second response. Saying, oh, of course, yes, yes, I'll do this. Um, Let me just finish what I'm doing right now, and I'll come back later. Let me just finish the game I'm playing, the show I'm watching, whatever it might be, the book I'm reading, and I'll come back later and do those dishes, wash the car, whatever it might be. What's interesting in this parable is that Jesus is basically saying it's far better to have open and honest rejection and then come to faith truly than to think that you'll come to faith one day or to think that one day you'll get around to do it, to think that one day that idea of, yeah, I'll, I'll come around, I'll, I'll join the church one day, I'll be a part of it one day, but right now my sport is more important or my hobbies are more important or my friends are more important or it's not cool right now, it'll be a cool thing when I'm middle-aged, but right now it's not a cool thing to do. And he's talking here about the tax collectors and the Pharisees who had... Um, the the tax collectors who had no outward righteousness, they were the ones who said, I will not, while the Pharisees had a form of outward righteousness, and he says that it's actually going to be the repentant tax collectors who will enter the kingdom of God rather than the self-righteous Pharisees. So no one can trust in the future with any kind of certainty. No one can say to themselves, tomorrow, the future when I'm 25, when I'm 30, when I'm 35, whatever it might be, then will be a good time to be a Christian. Let us see ourselves as part of God's church today. So turn with me now. We're going to actually dive in more deeply to a passage of Scripture that I've come to love over the last probably 18 months especially. Um, It's in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's towards the end of the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is where we'll start reading. Ecclesiastes can be a bit of a difficult book to pick up without any kind of background, and so I'll just offer a a brief summary. It's just two sentences. Life in a fallen world is vanity, and I'm powerless to overcome the effects of the fall. And then the second sentence, God will reverse the curses of the fall And a life devoted to God is utterly valuable. So those two ideas, life in a fallen world is vanity or meaningless, it's fleeting, and I'm powerless to overcome that. And then the second sentence, God will one day reverse these curses, and a life devoted to God is utterly valuable. One of the things I really appreciate about the book of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon goes to every length to try and prove that life in a fallen world can be enjoyed just on its own merits. Without any reference to God, without any devotion to Him, he's trying to see, can I test this theory? Can I see if it holds? And by doing that, what Solomon does is he reminds us that you are not special. I'll say that again because it seems to go directly as a contradiction to everything you might have heard your whole life, but you are not special. At least in this sense that you 
are not going to be able to overcome the effects of the fall. If Solomon wasn't able to, then neither will you be able to. That if you try and find your ultimate worth or meaning or treasures in this life, you are going to find out at the end that you have wasted it and that you have found no lasting satisfaction. Life in a fallen world is meaningless or vanity. I'm powerless to overcome these effects of the fall. One day God will reverse this curse. And finally, a life devoted to God is utterly valuable. That's kind of Ecclesiastes in two sentences. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, I'll begin reading from verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart And put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, And the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails." Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Before we open up God's word together, let us ask him to bless our time. Pray with me. Our God, I pray that today as we look into your word and see the truths of who you are and who we are and who you have created us to be are found in these pages. We pray that you might guide us as we look into them, that by your spirit you would open our eyes to see these things clearly, that you would guide us into truth, that we would be prevented from any falsehood, that you would guard my mouth from error, and that for each one here, you would help us to love you more dearly, to know you more truly, and to follow you more closely, we pray. We ask this all now in Christ's name. Amen. Does anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand if you're embarrassed, but does anybody here find poetry challenging sometimes. I know I do. But poetry is one of the most popular genres in the Bible, and so 
rather than skip over it, rather than think it's lame, or rather than think it's too hard, it often contains some of the most beautiful truths about God. Have you ever thought about that to yourself, that, that God could have, and he would have been certainly within his rights, to write the entire Bible to us like a newspaper article? This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it would have contained truth. But in God's providence, he not only gave us words which were true, but words which are beautiful. And that reflects something about who he is. Not only is he holy and truthful and altogether lovely, but he is also a God who is perfect beauty. And so don't be put off by this poetry here, but I think as we look into it, you'll actually get to see that the, the reason why the author here uses this poetry is so that we might be confronted all the more with what he is trying to say. And so I have two commands for us today from this text that I want to focus on. Two commands which I think perfectly tie together with this idea of don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Don't put off salvation till tomorrow. Don't buy into that lie that you are the church of tomorrow, but instead see yourself as part of God's church today. And those two commands, we'll look at the first one beginning in verse 7, is rejoice in your youth for it will not last. Rejoice in your youth for it will not last. Now, I wouldn't normally do this in a, in a sermon, but this is a, a little bit of a different setting, and so please do call out. I'd love, love to hear an answer to this question. Um, how old would you say is old? What's, what's an old person? Be honest. What do you think? I heard 37 somewhere over here, I think. Is that 40s? Oh, Okay. 100. Okay, I think we would all agree that 100 is pretty old, but I, I really resonate with this comment of 40. I remember thinking to myself when I was um, younger still that, wow, 40 seems really old. And then my dad turned 40, and I thought, 40 doesn't seem that old. Um, and then I remember my grandparents turning 60, and I thought, wow, that's old. That's ancient. 60 years old. And now my dad, as he's very close to being 60, I think, he seems a lot younger than a 60-year-old when I was six or seven. And it's this reality that when we think of what it means to be old and we think of what it means to be young, a lot of it is quite relative. Maybe you already think to yourself that you, you can remember back to a time when you thought a certain age was really old. You can think back to yourself when you were younger and think, wow, that seems really young, even if you still are, by all definitions, a young person today. But this idea of youthfulness, or this idea of being young as it's described here, this youthfulness will not last. One of the reasons I love the book of Ecclesiastes is that it's incredibly realistic. It says to us that you are not going to be able to escape the effects of the fall. That you are not special in that way. That you are not going to be able to do something different. You're not going to be able to outsmart you're not going to be able to get, gather enough wealth to outbuy, and you're not going to be able to outpleasure 
the fact that one day each one of us will grow old and die, or perhaps not even grow old and die. The preacher begins this new section in Ecclesiastes in verse 7 with a call to rejoice in your youth. And the reasons he gives for that is, is because it won't last. Your youth is not a time to be wasted, not a time to long for something to come, but instead to rejoice in it, to enjoy it, to savor it. Because it's short, it's fleeting, it will not last forever. One commentator says, Our present life was meant to be joyous, as pleasant to the eyes as the rising sun in the morning. Verse 7 says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Basically saying that all of life, all of the days where we can see the sun, where we can look up and see these things of earth, these are days that we can rejoice in. Verse 8 goes on to carry that thought and says, If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Before going specifically to young people and saying rejoice in your youth, Solomon says that all of life is to carry some level of rejoicing. That all of life is a good gift from our loving God And that all of life can be seen as a gift from his hand. Yet, and again, this is the realism of Ecclesiastes. There's this recognition that many days in the future will carry darkness with them. The days will not necessarily be easy. The days will not necessarily be fun as we might define fun. The days in the future might in fact be hard, challenging, full of sorrow, and yet they are days when we can still see the light, to still see the sun, to rejoice in all of these days. I think that's a really powerful message for us to hear because it seems to me that the two messages that we often hear as Christians would on one hand be this idea of saying that the Christian life should be one full of joy and it almost ignores any kind of suffering or hardships or trials. Or on the other hand, you might have people who say the Christian life is hard, which it is, or it's difficult, which it is, or it might cause suffering, which it may, without any reference to the joys present in the gospel. So Ecclesiastes, like the rest of the Bible, doesn't choose either or, but says actually there's a third way which is better and biblical because it is the way created by God. And so if your life is challenging, the book of Ecclesiastes has something for you. If your life has been relatively easy so far, the book of Ecclesiastes is able to warn you that it might not always be that way. And so the Christian life is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky journey through life where we whistle the whole way and ignore the problems that are going on. That's not what God has called us to. 
Instead, there's this real recognition that life on earth is difficult. Life on earth is hard. The effects of sin are real. Using the language of Ecclesiastes, the days of darkness will be many. And so Ecclesiastes doesn't ignore the hardships of life. Doesn't tell you to close your eyes, plug your ears, and just wish real hard that things would get better. It has this intense realism within it. It speaks to what life is really like. And yet, it calls us to rejoice in all these days. But a second command comes after that. In verse 9 it says, Rejoice, O young man or young person, in your youth. Rejoice in your youth. There's a specific kind of rejoicing that young people are to be able to enjoy because of these things which Solomon will go on to list. Rejoice particularly in your youth. This is a command. I think we all know the commandments not to steal or not to bear false witness or not to take the Lord's name in vain. But why a commandment to rejoice? I think it's really important when you read the Bible and you see a command to ask yourself why. Why would God need to include that? There's a commandment to rejoice. We must be able to think that as humans by our sinful nature we would be prone to forgetting to rejoice. Prone to ignoring the good gifts of God. Prone to forgetting the things He has done for us. And so the command there is given so that we might rejoice. So that we might have joy in this life. As a believer, if you're able to see life as more than just the things that Solomon describes as life in a fallen world, instead of just seeing the things here on earth, you're able to actually look above the life under the sun to life in heaven, you will be able to have real and lasting joy here on earth. Verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your body and put away pain. Sorry, remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. I think one of the saddest things in this life is the reality that many Christians seem quite grumpy or quite sour about the fact that we have to live in such a way or have to, uh, as far as they would define it, have to live as if all of life were removed of any kind of joy. But that's simply not the Christianity described in the Bible. Christians ought to be the people who enjoy life most who see the good gifts of life as part of what we can enjoy and in fact are commanded to enjoy. Look at that verse again. It says in verse 9, Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Follow your desires. Look at all these things that you can enjoy and enjoy them while you are young. 
There's a great temptation to be overwhelmed by the cares of this world and to have all of your joy squashed. But instead, rejoice in these different things. One of the things that is really interesting about this verse, verse 9, is that it seems at first, and I'll hope to show us that it doesn't eventually, but it seems at first to fly in the face or be a direct contradiction to a different verse in Scripture. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 39, it says, And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So how can we understand these two verses together? How can Ecclesiastes be saying to us, go off and follow the desires of your heart, look with your eyes, do all these things, and then numbers say, do not do that which is mentioned. And I think there's two two phrases that we can use here that will help us really understand what Solomon is getting after. And these two phrases happen to be in Latin. They're quite simple phrases, um, but, but they sound better together if they're in Latin, so I think I'll use them. The two phrases are carpe diem and coram deo. Carpe diem, you may have heard before, it means seize the day. Seize the day. Let nothing pass before your eyes. Let no desire of your heart go unfulfilled. Live wholeheartedly. Live wholeheartedly. Seize the day. Savor the things you enjoy. Have you ever thought to yourself, and maybe this is just me, but have you ever thought to yourself of how grateful you are that we get to have roast beef and Yorkshire puddings for dinner rather than just some gray paste that satisfies all our nutritional need? Savor good food. Enjoy it. Enjoy the things of life. What a blessing it is that God has given us all these things which He did not have to do. He's given us good food to enjoy. He's given us relationships to share. He's given us hobbies to participate in. He's given us sports to play. He's given us all these things which do not have to be ours, but are a gift from His hand that we can seize and enjoy. Suck all the honey out of the honeycomb of life. Enjoy it. Do not be satisfied with only tasting some of God's gifts, but taste them all. Enjoy them all. Young people specifically, enjoy your strength, your energy now. Rejoice in your health if you have it. That is a blessing from God. Seize it, enjoy it, love it. So that's that first phrase. Seize the day or carpe diem. Enjoy all these things. That's what that verse is getting at. But that verse doesn't end with that phrase, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. It ends with that tempering phrase, God will bring you into judgment. It says, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And so that second phrase that I mentioned, coram deo, means before the face of God. So live life to the full, but live all of your life in awareness that you are living life before God. 
that nothing you do goes unseen, that nothing you do will be forgotten. Numbers, not numbers, sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so it's almost like these two verses, the verse I mentioned in the book of Numbers and the verse here in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, serve as two guardrails for us. And they have two different commands. The verse in Numbers is, is focusing on the negative, focusing on do not go after the less of your heart and forget that you live before God. But the verse here in Ecclesiastes is on the other hand, it says, not only don't forget that you are living life before God, but don't forget to enjoy the things he's given you. If you forget or if you waste your life away enjoying none of God's good gifts, that neither is living a life that God has called you to. I think as Christians we can be quite good as, at seeing the wrongness of a life of open and, and rebellious sin. We're quite good at that. It's quite easy for us. But as Christians, are we as easy to, it's not as easy to spot a life that's ignorant or that does not acknowledge the good gifts of God, an ungrateful life, a life that's devoid of thankfulness, a life that has no enjoyment of it. Friend, if you don't enjoy some of the things in this world, you are not enjoying the God who gave them to you to savor and enjoy. So why young people in particular? Why young people receive this call? Why do they receive this specific call? Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. There's a reality that children are full of hopes and dreams and the desire to do all these different things, but they don't have the opportunity or the means to make them happen. Right? They want to do all these different things. Maybe you had incredible passion or a desire when you were a really, really young child, but there was no way you could make that happen. You had this idea to build this incredible bike invention or whatever you were doodling on a page, but there's no way you could ever make that happen because you didn't have the funding or the time or the energy, all those different things. And there's the flip side where in older life, you might have the opportunity, you have spare time, you might have the funds to do something, but you no longer have that energy or that vigor or that strength. And so in that time in between, that time in between childhood and older age, is this age that we might call broadly youth, probably a little bit younger than a young adult and probably a little bit older than how we would think about a young adult, and this time of youth where you are both able to dream and have these desires and have these passions and also are beginning to actually be able to make them happen, Lord willing. Children do not have the means or opportunities to realize their fulfillment that they might dream. And in adulthood, later adulthood, you might have these opportunities and the funds or the means, but you no longer have the strength, the dreams, or the passions. Think about all the things that happen when you are young. That this time of life is often marked 
by graduations, by weddings, by children, by all these unique changes in life. This is a great time of life you are entering into, a time of life where you're experiencing more independence for perhaps the first time. We're experiencing friendships and all these different things in a new way, and it is a wonderful time. And so rejoice in that. Enjoy it. But also remember that you live before the face of God. Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And this call is similar, similar here. So rejoice in your youth, for it will not last. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 10 says, Remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, Solomon uses vanity a few different ways in the book of Ecclesiastes, but right here, he's using it like the snap of a finger or like the exhale of a breath. It's passing away. Your youth is short, and so rejoice while you are young. Do not rejoice because you are young. It's not as though Solomon is saying that all of life is bad, but youth is good. So rejoice for the fact that you're young. But he's saying, in your youth, rejoice in the gifts that God has given you. So that's the first command we see. But the second command, the second command is even more specifically related to this idea of putting off till tomorrow what we need to get right today before God. So the second command, remember your creator before it is too late. Rejoice in your youth because it will not last. Remember your creator before it is too late. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 1 says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And again, if we think back to that first command and think to ourselves, why would we need a commandment to rejoice? We might start by saying, why do we need a commandment to remember? And if, like I mentioned earlier, that Christians have a great tendency to be ungrateful and not rejoice... I think the similar truth would hold that Christians have a great tendency to forget. And I'm not talking about forgetting where you're going or forgetting where um, you might have put something or losing things, which I do often, but I'm talking about forgetting the works of God, forgetting what He has done, not being aware of what He has done for us. In the Bible, remembering is so much more than simply the mind working, but it is a word which carries action with it. I'm not going to ask you to turn to these places, but if you want to write them down, you can. We're going to go on a bit of a whirlwind tour through the Bible and look at this idea of remembering. In Genesis chapter 8, God remembered Noah and all aboard the ark and caused the waters to subside. 
Now, if God had simply remembered, then we would have a God who forgot. and God cannot change. But remembering here is him actually acting in the favor of the people he is thinking of. God remembers Noah, and he brings them to salvation. Genesis chapter 9, God says, I will remember my covenant. Genesis chapter 17, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Exodus chapter 2, God heard the Israelites groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob, and raises up Moses. Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What good would it have done the Israelites if they would have been sitting around of their tents and on the Sabbath day have thought to themselves, yeah, I remember it's the Sabbath day. I didn't forget it. And then they just went about living how they would. Of course that wouldn't be obedience to that. No one would think that. But to remember the Sabbath day was to act in such a way that lined up with that remembrance. 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 11 says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That's the prayer of Hannah for a son. And God there remembers Hannah and blesses her. It says in verse 19 of that same chapter in 1 Samuel, the Lord remembered Hannah. None of these verses make sense if we think of remembrance like just some kind of recollection of facts, but instead they carry with it action. The Lord does not remember Hannah because he forgot her. And all of a sudden it's like, oh no, Hannah still hasn't given birth. By no means, what he is doing is that God is acting on her behalf. God is demonstrating his love towards her. God remembers her by keeping his promises. The Lord shows his commitment through promises and by remembering them. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was kept not by memorizing facts, but by obeying God's law. Remember, it is the fool, the wicked person who says, there is no God. And so if a total and utter rejection or forgetfulness of God would be the height of foolishness, then it would follow in our verse here that to remember God to remember God is to turn to Him in faith, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, to follow after Him, to have the relationship that was destroyed in the Garden of Eden restored by the loving kindness of God. This is not some kind of recollection of facts, but it is a life-changing kind of remembering. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8 to 11, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. That's what is talked about when you think of remembering your Creator. It's not just to have this idea in your mind of a God that is out there, but to have been reconciled, to have been brought from death to life by faith in Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says something, again, connected to this idea of remembering. It says in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the kind of remembering that's talked about here. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. The command to remember is the call of the gospel to believe. So, let us think about another question. Why would this command be given to young people in particularly? Why would this command not be given to anyone? Is it not good that everyone should remember their creator? Why is this the command given specifically to young people? In his book, Thoughts for Young Men, which I think is one of my favorite books I've ever read, J.C. Ryle gives five reasons why he has written this book for his audience. And I would just say that although the title might seem otherwise, this is a book that any young person should get and read. So why does he say he writes for young people in particularly? He gives five reasons, and I'll state them briefly. You'll have to get the book to know the rest. But he says five reasons. Few young people take religion seriously. Few young people take Christianity seriously. Number two, death and judgment are coming upon them. Just because they're young doesn't mean they get to escape death one day. Number three, he says what young people will be, what they will be in the future, depends on what they are now. What young people will be in the future depends on what they are right now. Number four, he says the devil uses special diligence to destroy them. And number five, he says serving God now will save them from sorrows. This isn't true presently, but one of the things that is tragic in that when J.C. Ryle was writing his book about 120 or so years ago, more than that now, 140, young people, with the very small exception of the very elderly, were the most likely to die. The most likely to die, and yet they were the people who thought they were furthest away from death and judgment. And so he's writing this book as this plea towards young people to say, don't think that you're going to be the one who lives forever. Don't think that you're going to be the one who lives until you're old. Don't think I can wait and be the church of tomorrow. He's saying, make sure you are right with God today. So that tomorrow, whatever may come, whether it's health and prosperity or whether it's death and judgment, you know where you stand with God. But there's more reasons than just those that Ryle mentions. God is to be given the first fruits of your lives. If you think about the Old Testament system of tithing, of giving your best to God, giving the first fruits of your crops to God, our life can be thinking in the same way. 
Why would we wait until we were 75 or 80 years old and say, God, you can have these last years of life? Would it not make sense to give the God who has given us everything the best years of your life? The years where you have the most to offer? The years where you have energy and passions and time? Give God the best of your life. It isn't very costly to follow God when you're old. You probably won't miss out on much. But it's costly, it's sacrificial to give God the years when you were young. And it's only possible if your heart has first been changed by Him. There was an old saying, similar time to when J.C. Ryle wrote, that said, youth for pleasure, age for business, old age for religion. Youth for pleasure, age for business, old age for religion. And one author writing to that specific statement at his time said, it's as if we are saying, let the devil have the prime and God the dregs. Time enough to think of religion when we are old, when we can serve the world no longer. Now is the time for pleasure, to see as much of life as we can. Religion will come in course. This is again that same kind of message. Youth are the church of tomorrow. Put it off until tomorrow. Don't worry about today. Don't worry about right now. Focus on the future. And so to close, I want to look just briefly at the reasons why Solomon gives. Why does he say, remember your creator in your youth? And there's several times, three times in fact, that in this next section, the word before is used. Three times the word before is used, and those times should give us an indication of just what is at stake. So the first time, he says, remember your creator before the evil days come. Everyone who does not die young will grow old. Everyone who does not die young will grow old. The only way to escape old age is if you tragically die young and neither of these things are in your control. And so Solomon says, remember your creator when you are young. Old age is not a promise given to you. And yet he says that growing old is full of suffering. Maybe you have a grandparent or a great-grandparent you've seen go through the end of older age. You know how hard it is. It's not easy. And so what Solomon is saying is that from an earthly perspective, it is far more likely for you to give thanks and rejoice for your life now than to wait when things are being ripped from you, when your powers of speech are being taken away by age, when you are no longer mobile, when you are no longer able to think clearly, when you are no longer able to visit the people that you love, when life is hard and the world is falling apart, he's saying, you're not likely to remember God for the first time then. But remember your Creator before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. 
He's saying rejoice, remember your creator now so that you can walk with your creator through those hard times. You can depend on him in those hard times rather than feeling alone, forgotten, and ignored. The sufferings of old age do not have to be faced in unbelief, so remember your creator now, he says. Next thing Solomon does is he says, remember your creator before, and he goes on to give a really lengthy illustration. The first one let's look at is he said, before the sun, this is verse 2, and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. The cloud returns after the rain? Does that make sense? Normally, what happens after it rains? Sun comes out. A rainbow might happen. But what Solomon is saying here is that while in your youth, when difficult times happen, the clouds flee from you eventually, and the sun comes out again, there is going to be a time in your life when it rains, and then the clouds come again. Where you are going from one issue to the other, where you have rain upon rain, where you have rain followed by clouds rather than rain followed by sunshine. There's an ever-present, an ever-approaching storm that's called old age and it's coming. The second illustration is three verses long and we won't look at it in depth, but you can see just by looking at it that it's this image of a house in decline. This image of a house, and you can probably also see some of the connections that might be given to the human body. Where the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. That whole section, verses 3 to 6, just shows how hard life can get physically when you are old. These verses point to the decay and destruction of our bodies. They move from bad to worse and eventually end in verse 7 where it says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And when we hear those words, and I would include myself in this group, as young people, that experience isn't a lived experience for us. We haven't grown old. We haven't had those things happen. And so Solomon is calling each one of us to remember, to turn in faith, to follow God when we are young so that when those days come, you will not be walking through them alone. When those days come, when you are prone to forgetting God because of how hard life is, you will have had this foundation of decades of God's faithfulness to look back upon. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In our young life, 
it may seem to us that we have many good things other than God. We might not be able at first to resonate with what this passage says, that our flesh and our hearts may fail, but God is our strength and our portion forever. But this passage is reminding us that while it may seem that we have so many other things beside God, that actually every good gift that we have is from God and that we must remember Him. We must turn to Him in faith before those days come when every good gift seemingly is taken away from us. This passage ends by saying, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. He's saying that life is short, that death is certain, and that the reality of the judgment is final. So remember before it is too late. Remember before tomorrow comes. Don't buy into the lie that says that I can join the church. I can become a saved person. I can trust in Christ in the future. Because as your life goes by, Solomon is saying you're less and less likely to. Now obviously, praise God for the exceptions to that rule. But Solomon again hearing is is dealing with the general. And he's saying that if you look at your life now, and if you look at your life and see all the blessings you have, all the good things that God has given to you, now what a time to rejoice and remember. What a time now while you can still enjoy all these good things, now is the time to turn to Him in faith. Don't wait until tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him in faith and join God's church today. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for these words which cut deeply, which point to the reality of life. And Lord, that while we may not have experienced all the things mentioned here, while those of us who are still young have not had to go through these things, we know, oh Lord, that unless you return, these things await each one of us. Lord, I pray that each one here might know the power of these words, that each one here might remember you now, that no one would escape this room without feeling this passage in their hearts, without turning to you in faith and without following you here on out. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Right. Well, um, we are finished about half an hour before lunch. Um, And so tomorrow, just give you a bit of a preview. Tomorrow we're going to look at